Hello everyone. I'd like to begin by saying thank you for the organisers for giving me the opportunity to be here today. I'm really enjoying learning more about the brilliant Brazilian experience. Um, oh, so before I start, I'm Irish and I have a habit of speaking fast. So if I do, please wave at me and tell me, okay? Is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. I can, I can, it's fine. It's okay, I can see. Thanks. All right. Um, in my presentation today, I was asked to come and give some statistical trends around patents and amnesty use around the world. And so I'm going to begin by giving a bit of an overview of the data that I'm using. And then I will introduce some trends by year, by region, by type of amnesty. Um, some of you might be familiar with this already, but there are some slides you won't have seen before about patents in the past 10 years since the ICC was established, etc. Um, so just to begin with, my research draws on the Amnesty Law database I constructed during my PhD and have been working on for a few years. This um, tries to compile information on amnesties introduced around the world since 1945. It's different from some other data sets in that it doesn't try to talk about the impact of the amnesty law. It's just trying to map what they look like in various ways. So it picks out fields, for example, such as what crimes are amnestied, what groups of offenders are covered, what process leads to the enactment of the amnesty law, whether it's conditional and whether it relates to other transitional justice processes. So it's very, very descriptive in how it approaches the amnesty laws. Um, also, I think I should note that it doesn't look particularly at transitional amnesties. It looks at amnesties responding to political crises. These can be dictatorships or conflicts or, in some cases, military coups or civil unrest. So it's probably a broader context than some other data sets. And it also doesn't focus solely on amnesties for international crimes. So a lot of the, data, a lot of the amnesties I look at international crimes may not be a factor in, in their introduction. Okay. In compiling the data, I use quite a range of data sources. So I try, as far as possible, to always look at the primary text of the actual amnesty laws. And then, because amnesty laws often are deliberately obfuscatory, they try and conceal why they are introduced or what crimes are covered, I try and supplement understanding what the amnesty law is about by looking at a range of secondary sources. So this can be case law, or reports of the UN or the inter-American system, it can be human rights reports and scholarly materials, and in some cases, newspaper articles. And so within the database, I keep a record of all the materials used to compile each profile. Um, currently, oh, yeah. It's, sorry, I don't remember what my slides were there. Yeah, I use, when I use these data sets, I use them to compile profiles of amnesties. And that's what, when I make the database available online, that's what users will see. You'll be able to type in a country, you'll get a descriptive profile with the list of literature. But also when I'm using it, I then use it to pull out trends and identify patterns. So it has a couple of multiple purposes. So currently, up until July 2010, the database contains information on um, 529 amnesty laws introduced in 138 countries. That's considerably more than I expected when I started working on this project, more than I realized I was letting myself in for. 
<laughs> Today I'm not talking about the whole data set because the focus of this conference really is on the global accountability norm. I'm just showing data over the past 30 years, so from 1979. So this means today the graphs I'll show you are drawing on 389 amnesty laws in 117 countries. So the first slide I'm going to show you is just the numbers of amnesty laws over the past 30 years broken down by two-year intervals. So if, you, if I show you the longer trend, what you'd see right into the 70s is a sharp increase uh, from quite a low level off, immediately after World War II. And then you see over the past 30 years, there's been a number of peaks and troughs. Some of them you can probably pick out, like the end of the Cold War, led to a bunch of amnesties in Eastern Europe and in newly independent states, also in other countries where the civil wars ended as a result of the Cold War ending. Also in the late 1990s, you see another spike, and that's relating again to um, amnesties in Central Asia, and as a result, result of the conflicts in the Balkans as well. I think, um, I'm not sure it's showing up very clearly on the slide, but there's one roughly horizontal line running just below where it says 25 in the graph. What that line is showing you is the trend over this period. So what you can see is over the 30 years, the rate of amnesty law enactment remained fairly constant. There hasn't been a big drop if you look at it over that time period. Now, on this, as this what I'm showing you is the past 10 years. I've chosen to highlight the past 10 years because it's in this period we've seen international criminal tribunals working more effectively and the ICC being established. We've seen the United Nations changing its position around amnesty laws and peace agreements and we've seen growth of prosecutions before national courts, particularly in the Americas. And so what my data is showing me right now is that there's a drop in trends over the past decade. I think when I'm showing this, I'm trying to show it with a very cautionary note, because if you did this chart just to 2006, you'd see a more steady line. Then it drops in 2008 and 2009 to the lowest amount, but then it's going up again in 2010. So what you could see there is by the time I did this in July 2010, there'd already been seven amnesty laws. Since then, there's been, I think, another three, one in the Philippines, one in Tajikistan, one in, I think, in Peru, that lasted a short period. Now, as far as I understand, one's been proposed in Syria at the moment for PKK fighters. So by the end of the year, that trend may look a bit different. So this is a very, very um, cautionary note about what, how to interpret this data, because the numbers involved each year are still quite small. There. Now, the next slide is just to give an indication of regional trends over the 30-year period. Here, I guess one thing to pick up is that every region had amnesties over this period, but there were variations. So you can see, for example, for the Americas, there was a lot in the 80s, and then it's dropped away down. So America went from being the region that had enacted amnesty laws most frequently to being the region now where they're least frequent. Um, if I looked at trend lines over this period, which is, would be too messy to show you on a graph, what you'd see over 30 years is that in all regions, apart, um, I, think, I think in all regions of the world, there was increases over this time, apart from South America because of the deep, deep drop at the end. And I think the sharpest increase during this period has occurred in Asia. And the greatest total number of amnesties was introduced in sub-Saharan Africa, I think because of the larger number of countries within that region and also the higher rates of ongoing conflict. So just in the past 10 years, again, it would be quite, quite messy if I tried to show you this in a graph, but because the trend in the number of amnesty laws has dropped around the world, the regional trends have also altered. 
So now most regions of the world are showing a slight decline in the rate of amnesty use. And the only area that where it's still growing is Asia. But again, of course, you note these numbers are very small. So I think it's too early to determine whether these are long-standing trends, apart from in the Americas, where it's, it's been, been going on for quite a while. Okay, um, now just to show what sort of situations give rise to amnesties, here are some different categories of type of political crisis I look at in my database. And so you can see there, there's um, conflicted democracy, which is a term I borrowed from Campbell and Neuland when some of their writings about the nature of transitional justice in Northern Ireland. And then there's coup attempts, ongoing conflicts, ongoing repressions. I think what you could note from this really is that over the 30 year period, almost half of the amnesties were introduced in response to conflict. If you look just the last 10 years, it's actually over 50%. So a large, large number of them are conflict related. And I think this is a trend that's been found in the work of other authors such as Vinja Murray and Bosenecker have been documenting amnesties related to conflicts as well. Okay. So now, there are a number of ways out which I could look at how the nature of the amnesty laws themselves has changed over time, but because it's only a 20-minute talk, I just chose to pick out the, how, the relationship of amnesties and international crimes, because that's, I think, probably the most relevant to discussions on accountability. Um, here, there are a number of factors I want to highlight. So firstly, as I've already said, within my data set, not all amnesties have a bearing on international crimes. If it's a military coup, it may not be that violent. If it's civil unrest, it may not be systematic and widespread enough to reach the threshold of crimes against humanity. Um, also, there, perhaps if I'm looking at the earlier time periods in my database, states wouldn't have ratified the relevant conventions, and so it may not be applicable. Um, also, because I'm looking at amnesties relating to the release of political prisoners, there, again, international crimes wouldn't be a factor. So this, what I'm going to show now would be a subset of, of the total data set. Um, I think another thing to note is that when I present this data, it's very difficult to classify whether an amnesty covers international crimes or not. We're trying to assess this sort of state practice. Um, Usually, typically, an amnesty law never says we're granting amnesty to torturers or genociders. What they'll say is we're granting amnesty for all conflict-related crimes that occurred between these states. So then what you have to do is infer whether international crimes were committed in that conflict. And so to do that, I try and rely on different sources, like UN and Commission of Experts reports, like um, relevant case law. Etc. So I'll be trying to infer if an amnesty covers international crimes. It's easier if it's about whether the amnesty excludes them, because that will usually be said explicitly in the text of the amnesty legislation. So I think as a result of those sort of... Too slowly. Um, so I think as a result of those problems working out whether international crimes are covered, the data set probably underrepresents slightly the, the number of amnesties for these crimes. Okay, so again, if you look at the trends over the past 30 years, what you'll see is that there's been an increase in both, really, over the period. That, that we could, I think before, international crimes wouldn't have been factored in many, but as amnesties have gone up, you could see that the number excluding them increased sharply in the early 2000s. But overall, there hasn't been a big difference in where we're at now. There are kind of similar numbers are including and excluding amnesties. So again, if you look at it by year for the past decade, 
for both categories, including excluding international crimes. And sorry, I should note when I say international crimes, I mean war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, disappearances, and torture. So these are amnesties that either include or exclude these crimes. And it seems that they're roughly equal. You know, there's one more amnesty a year, including then excluding. So to say states are more likely to do one or the other is very problematic. Okay, and this is kind of the final section of my talk. I'm not sure where I am time-wise, but um, in the written version of the paper, this is like 10 pages talking about the global <laughs> accountability norm. So I've condensed it to one slide, so it's a bit brief. Um, I think the first thing to note is that, obviously, as has been well documented and Jeff was talking about earlier, there is plenty of evidence for a global accountability norm growing. You can look at the International Criminal Tribunals and national courts. So there's a lot of things have been happening. But at the same time, as these slides have shown you, there are still amnesty laws being introduced around the world. So I think if you um, I think if you look at that, it can kind of cast out an extent to which the actual accountability norm is affecting the state's decisions when they're deciding whether to introduce amnesty laws, just in terms of whether to amnesty or not. Sorry. <laughs> Okay. Um, remember what I said. The little <laughs> difference. Yeah. Okay. So, in terms of the global accountability norm becoming established, we can see that amnesties continue to be introduced around the world, and that little difference has arisen between whether amnesties are more likely or less likely to include or exclude international crimes. I think historically they would have been not likely at all to have explicitly executed them. So the fact that they're doing that now, I think, is a response to the growth of the, uh, the global accountability norm. But there isn't a big difference either way at the moment. I think other things I think are interesting is how other states or international actors are responding to amnesty laws continuing to be introduced. I think if you look at discussions of the global accountability norm, they point to things like international condemnation of impunity or pressure on actors to um, refrain from amnesty laws. But actually, that condemnation is quite patchy. You see it more in relation to some countries than others. And you, you see some, some actors being willing to condemn an amnesty in one place but being silenced in other moments. I think there's a couple of examples I'm just going to highlight here that interested me recently. Firstly, in relation to the Juba peace process in Uganda. There, you have a context where the ICC has issued arrest warrants, and there's a lot of attention on prosecutions for serious human rights violations. You also had an Amnesty Act that had been enacted in 2000. So while the peace talks are going on, we have a lot of discussion about the need to prosecute people who've been indicted. But during the same moment, states who are members of the ICC are fund the work of the Amnesty Commission. So I think it's about $10 million was given in, in 2009 to the Amnesty Commission by a group of states through a trust fund of the World Bank. And what they're giving the money for is an anticipation that large numbers of combatants will want to disarm, surrender and disarm at that point. So they're trying to support the DDR initiative. And so they see the amnesty, support for the amnesty coexisting with support for the ICC in some level. Another example that intrigued me recently um, when I was updating my database was uh, the recent 
the termination of the conflict in Sri Lanka between the Tamil Tigers and the Sri Lankan government. There, the conflict clearly is being characterised by serious human rights violations committed by all sides. In the final stages of the conflict, there, there was talk of the Sri Lankan government offering amnesty to the Tamil Tigers because of the, to try and stop the severe um, suffering of, the, of Sri Lankan civilians in the final stages of the conflict. And what, what happened then was the European Parliament, the UN Security Council, the co-chairs of the peace process in Sri Lanka all called on Tamil fighters to take part in this process, to surrender and disarm. So you're seeing quite a lot of big actors supporting Anansi at that moment because they think it's going to save lives. Um, I think other things that are interesting to note is that whenever states have had an opportunity to prohibit amnesties, they haven't done so. The issue was discussed during conference. There are proposals that amnesties should be explicitly prohibited in the statute and no consensus could be reached. Um, and I think a final note, which uh, Naomi was highlighting today, is that there are always going to be obstacles to prosecution. So even if you get rid of an amnesty, other obstacles remain. And I think in relation to amnesty laws that now exclude international crimes, that doesn't always mean the prosecution's result. Sometimes international crimes are excluded because states believe in prosecution. They may not be able to do it straight away, but they want to leave the option open. In other cases, it seems slightly more cynical. They choose to exclude the international crimes rhetorically. But then when it comes to implementing the amnesty process, they don't really investigate too thoroughly to see who's eligible. And so you see these processes not being carried out as fully in practice. Okay. So just to conclude a few points, um, I think over the 30-year period, what we've seen is quite a steady rate of amnesty law enactment. But there are some indications, tentative as yet, but there's some indications that there's been a decline over the past 10 years. And it'll be interesting to see how that develops, I think, in the next few years. Um, because also the number of amnesties executing international crimes has increased, but so too have the number including these crimes. Uh, and I think amnesty laws still continue to gain some international support, so they, they loudly are condemned in many for very often, but on the other hand, they're still receiving both rhetorical, diplomatic, and financial support in some cases. Thank you.